Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Together with Delta, they're putting 5G into the hands of ground staff so they can better assist on-the-go travelers with real-time information. From the Delta Sky Club to the Jet Bridge, this is elevating customer experience. This is Delta with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Last spring, my friend Stephanie and I had a chance to travel to Rome as part of her research trip. And as usual when I travel, we stayed at an amazing Airbnb. It was the perfect spot to check out the sights and just relax. But what was happening to my house while I was away? Did you know that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? Most people don't think about their space as an Airbnb, but hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, welcome to Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of intimate interviews with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for tuning in. This week on the show, we have the talented director, Ira Sachs. Born in Memphis, Tennessee, Sachs came to prominence upon the release of Love is Strange, a moving drama about two men, played by Alfred Molina and John Lithgow, who get hitched only to then be separated because of housing. One character gets fired from their teaching job, forcing them to stay with friends as they look for affordable housing in New York City. This is exactly the type of narrative Sachs likes to spin. From The Delta, his first film, to keep the lights on, he helms humanist affairs that are at once empathetic, funny, and powerful. He doesn't shy away from the messiness of humanity, the emotional and psychological wreckage we so often put ourselves through. Instead, Sachs artfully confronts it head-on. His new movie, titled Little Men, is the most recent display of Sachs' abilities. It's a film about the bond between two preteens as their respective families attempt to resolve issues. It's a film about when life unfurls in ways you perhaps don't want it to or can't control. It's a film about the complexity of race and the salience of gentrification. Above all, it's kind of a movie about New York City. It's my grandfather's funeral. So I feel lost. Oh, that's okay. So you're the grandson. So how are you enjoying Brooklyn so far? I like it a lot. We have much more space. It's great. It's a lot more peaceful than Manhattan. You know, you're going to like this neighborhood. It's become a very bohemian area. Did you draw this? Wow, Jake. It's actually getting good. 
can't tell you how happy I am that Jake has a new friend. You have a great kid there, but I guess you know that. My parents are married. They just don't live together. I don't understand. <laughs> me neither. Your dad ain't good at acting. He's not that successful or anything. Maybe he can give me a couple pointers, because I want to be an actor when I grow up. The genesis of acting is seeing, understanding what makes behavior. I did it again. I did it again. You did it again. You did it again. You did it again. In his Twitter bio, and I, and I do recognize the silliness of looking to someone's Twitter bio here, but in Sachs' Twitter bio, he calls himself first a filmmaker, and then secondly, a New Yorker. Home is important to not only Sachs' work, but to him. Throughout his life, Sachs ambled into different cities looking for that home base a place he felt excited by and comfortable in. We get into the importance of home quite a bit in the conversation you're about to hear. We also talk about his upbringing, coming out to his parents, and the many problems indie distribution is currently facing. I hope you find the discussion as fascinating as I did. So, finally, here is Iris Sachs. Ira is a, is a Jewish Ira is a very Jewish. I should yeah. be I should be ninety five and or or dead and grew up in Brooklyn, but mm-hmm. I, I'm of a different generation than most Iris. Okay, so tell me about Memphis. Give me give me something. Here. Uh, disaster. The disaster economically. For okay. No, for me it was a great place to grow up. Okay. Um, just it's a mess. It's like it's like Detroit, but maybe not quite as disastrous. But it is uh, a very poor city where if you're born. Um, poor or black, then you have very few options that will make your life better. It's a really tough place. It's, um, you know, you see, it has just this, it's, it's sort of, Nashville's the opposite of Memphis right now. Nashville is a booming economic city. And, and I bring this up because I think growing up there as an upper middle class suburban kid, um, it was my, uh, but my dad lived, uh, in the in downtown Memphis in this in the sixties and seventies and so and was kind of a hippie and so I had these kind of different experiences. I, I saw a lot there. I feel like I wasn't as sheltered as, as a lot of people I know who maybe grew up in New York or LA or these places where where right. as privileged people you could sort of stay in that world of privilege. Um, but you said you were upper middle class. I was. So I was certainly um from, you know, economic uh advantages but um i was also i grew up in the 60s so memphis was a pretty uh interesting yeah what was happening town in and the 60s? my best friend growing up um was a kid named greg isabel and his father was a man named al bell who was the last um head of Stax records huh. and greg was actually a big inspiration for little men my friendship with him Really? Um, because we were two kids and a, and a, a black kid and a white kid and we were best friends and our friendship didn't have the same challenges that you see in little men, but, but we didn't, our friendship didn't last. And I think it's, and why didn't it last? Well, I think he, they moved out of town, but I actually think what begins to happen as kids get older is things like race and class start, the adult world starts to press in and the ways that kids, um, are able to cross those boundaries become harder once you're socialized, um, in your own set mm. in a certain way. And 
Another thing that I experienced in Memphis was I was a part of something called the Memphis Children's Theater, which was a theater run by kids, for kids. And I was there from sixth grade until I graduated in college. And that was an actually diverse, integrated community and the last one I was ever a part of, really. I mean, I don't see diversity the way that I did. And that, I think, had a lot to do with with the fact that we were kids. So we didn't we put there were black kids and white kids and poor kids and gay kids and straight kids and again that's not been replicated for my life as an adult and as also a part of little men which that world of the of the kids who are kind of finding each other is very it's beautiful it's easier to make friends when you're a kid like the stakes seem lower to me in the moment they seem higher i suspect when i was like in third grade right. But I became friends with people just on the virtue of us liking basketball. Like, we both just like basketball, and now we're friends. Yeah. It's interesting because I have two four-year-olds, and I'm watching their their friendship making. And you realize it's a set of skills that you had to learn, which I forgot about. Uh-huh. Like, it's hard for three- and four-year-old kids to make friends. Yeah. it's it, it becomes something they learn as they get just a little bit older. So it's all these different curves in life. And I find – that it's hard for 50-year-olds to make friends. I would say, is it? I was going to ask you about how often are you making new friends? Um, I would say most of the new friends I make are, are sort of become allies or comrades in a, through a professional or creative right. work. That, that I see. That I right. can see. It's because you're all going to a festival or you're all like – Or you're all struggling to make you're, movies. You're all struggling or, to make movies, right? You know, um, yeah. So, uh, but Memphis was, uh, you know, I made two films there, one called The Delta and one called Forty Shades of Blue. It was the, the only other city besides New York that I have so far felt confident enough that I had intimacy with to make a movie in, um, because I really, I, I think I know a part of it really well mm. and instinctually. Yeah. So in Memphis, when your best friend moves, when, yeah. when is that? That's in sixth grade. Sixth grade. Yeah. Okay, so... What what happened once you get to high school? Well, I went from basically an all girls school up until sixth grade, which only had like three three boys in my class. Three boys and how many girls? Like fifteen girls, oh, and okay. it was a maternal school, and it was a run by. It had been an all girls school, which went co ed, and we were like the first class, right? And it was wonderful, loved <laughs> it. Uh, and then I went to an all boys school in seventh grade where I had, was called kike and had pennies thrown at me and my friends were thrown into sticker bushes and there was the violence of masculinity mm. and I was, and I was also beginning to understand my own sexuality. Right. So there was this kind of, there was just a beginning of, of, of fearful time that I feel like for me lasted until I was 40. Really? <laughs> yeah. In From a lot seventh of ways. grade to 40. I mean, I feel like that's a, that's a, narrative of kind of self-discovery, which I feel was mirrored by my own movies. Mm-hmm. So my first um, four films were all about individuals trying to figure out who they were right. and having some conflict in that, that struggle. Um, when I got to be 40, sort of, I f- I'm happy to say I sort of got comfortable with myself in a new way. And my films are about different things. You know, all the, I had, I actually wanted to bring this up with you because I'm interested in, so when in seventh grade, or did you have a moment where you realized that you were attracted to men? Yeah. To some, but I oh, mean, everyone has or to that boys or, for, for yeah. whatever your sexuality is. I feel like there's always a moment where you realize, Oh, I still remember the first girl 
that I was into. I won't say it on here. Just uh, you do. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I you know for me it was it was around that time. It was around um, when I was thirteen and going through puberty and 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 almost my actions preceded my thought. So I began to have experiences um, really around at, the, at thirteen. Uh, yeah. Wow. I did. Uh, and I think that you know, like like a lot of uh, a lot of boys, and I think a lot of girls, I I, I sought out s- sex and mm-hmm. I sought out connection, um, and in that way I was precocious, and in another way it's lucky I'm alive. Mm-hmm. And when did your parents know? I came out in high school, so I came out uh, when I was sixteen, um, which was nineteen eighty two. And do you remember that? I remember each of those kind of conversations, my mother, my father, my sisters, my best friend. Um, I came out first to my best kind of girlfriend who would have been my, my actual romantic girlfriend if, if I had been straight and we spent all our time together and suffered together the way teenagers do. And, uh, but I really think that that moment of like trying to reveal who you are didn't, end once i came out right it just was a beginning of a really long process mm. were your parents receptive to the idea yeah i mean i had pretty you know i grew up pretty liberal jewish um progressive mm. home you know i think there's adjustments certainly and there's disappointments which is something i, I think is really interesting and i'm particularly interested in now and my is sort of and i think little men again is is speaks to this a lot about the kind of Parent looking at a child and realizing who are they and, and the inverse when a child looks at their parent and realizes that they are only as good as they can be. Right. It's a very poignant moment, I think. In my head, I thought Tennessee, you know, anyone who's not from the South, their idea of it is so limited. It's limited. Yeah. And it's not good. Well, it's interesting. I think it's, I think that's true for most of us about a lot of different places in the world. Maybe as we, travel and and have more experiences that broadens but there's still like you know you can talk about whole continents that i have no proper image of right so i think uh and i remember when i was a kid and i would think of the northeast like the whole northeast i used to think as my mother had gone to wellesley and i sort of had this kind of ivy league image of that place i imagined every single person i imagined it was always snowing and that it would be everyone was always wearing tweed jackets like huh. everybody, the whole area, because that was just my image of the Northeast. It was connected to like <laughs> tweed jackets. Yeah. Tweed snow. jackets and like, like Ivy league schools or something that was just happened to be where, you know, the, the limited number of, of images. And you see with kids and adults, but with kids particularly, they have no concept until they're exposed. So, mm-hmm. but I've, you know, I've been in New York much longer now than I've been in Memphis. So. So I does Memphis no longer feel like home? Memphis no longer feels like home. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, is your uh, family still there though? My my mom is there, and I uh, go back regularly. Uh, but I've I've I moved to New York. My first job in New York was in 1984, and I uh-huh. moved there full time in 1988. So we're talking about nearly 30 years, 28 years. Wow. And 
and I sort of, you know, I've had a number of lives in New York, which right. have sort of taken over. We're skipping a vital step here, though. Which is what? You went to Yale. I did go to yeah. Yale. Yeah. At the nice school. Oh, thank you. Good, it was Tweed and uh, it was, Snow and yeah, it was Ivy sad. League. Uh, I did go to Yale, which was um, which was a great – I mean, I'm still really close. I just saw a friend today. who I've, I'm very close to many people that I went to school with there. So I think it was a good – it was a particularly good community and it was an interesting place. I was not a particularly good student. I was an okay student, but I wasn't a, a brilliant academic. But it was a time of kind of deconstruction and literary theory and, and a lot of questioning of power. Uh, but how could you say you're not a good student? You got into Yale. I mean, that's like... So I was a good student, but when I got to Yale, right. I wasn't like the best student okay, there. So I wasn't like partic- someone who goes to the MBA and then they're on the bench their whole career. Well, I would not. I would only just say talk about academia. Okay, I was. I, I think I was. Uh, I, I was good at a lot of things I did there. I was a theater director, um, and I was very active politically. And hmm. I was. I just meant literally academia. Like was taking tests, writing papers. Really, writing papers. But you're a good writer. I'm a good writer, but there's a language. These were people who would go on to be, you know, teach in these same colleges. That wasn't my hey. language. Uh, I don't know. For me, it was, uh, I discovered a lot of things and a lot of people and a lot of how I wanted to, to be in my life. Right. Um, so what happens when you graduate? I do you have any of have, that, like, angst about Oh, yeah. Living? I mean, I, I'm actually about to do the commencement speech at the College of Art in Memphis. And really? so... Really, what I want to say is no one tells you how terrible it is to graduate from college and how hard it is <laughs> to, to, to reform yourself without that identity. And I think for me, that was certainly the case that it was just, I was used to being good at things and I was used to knowing how to be good at things. And then suddenly I had to create a relationship to economy, which I think, and money, which is in, in terms of my art practice. Right. I applied to film school, USC, UCLA, and NYU, and I didn't get in um, to any of those schools. Mm-hmm. So that was like, what? And uh, <laughs> But it, it turned out for me to be a positive thing because I just – I skipped the part where there was an idea that someone was going to tell me whether I could be a filmmaker, and I just started making films. Right. So I just did it out of instinct and having watched a lot of movies. Right. How long was it from you graduating college to making your first film? Uh, I graduated in January of 88 and I was shooting my first film in, um, in 89. Oh my God. That's quick. I was just a guy. I was a a Montessori kid. So I always was someone who wanted to, keep like I what, what's next what am I supposed to do next what am I supposed to do next I, I was too by the way oh really so yeah. you know what I'm talking about yeah. right it's unhealthy <laughs> but good here we are we're doing things yeah yeah <laughs> we're in the basement talking yeah <laughs> exactly but that's you know and, and so I think uh, uh, and and I was able to do that for, I made two short films and then I wrote a feature film and I, I didn't by the way you know, I didn't have any real concept that making a short was different than making a feature, which I still believe. And so people are always like, Oh, you're going to make your feature. It was just a longer version of, it was just a different work. Well, the, the finance, are different. Financially, it's different. Well, my first short was, um, 60 minutes. So it, yes, yeah. there's some financial. That, well, that, that really is like, I don't even know. That's like a medium. Yeah. Film. So, so, you know, I mean, I, I guess I, I 
I there are financial differences, but where where I really hit the financial problems was between one and two. Okay, because my first um, yeah, who funded your first film? My first film was friends and family and some of my own money and 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 got it from uh, like anyone I knew, and it was and that can only really happen once or a little bit twice. I got some of those people came back for my second film. Some of those wonderful people who is family and other but that what they wouldn't be they weren't able to finance the second film so right. it was a nine-year process yeah uh now it, we, we talk about tortures montessori right i mean yeah. you did something you graduated spent very little time meandering wandering aimlessly right. as most of us do right you make a film and then nine years for the second one how, yeah. how did you work through that i was in well, Keep the Lights On is a lot about that period. And it was a pretty dark period, which had the privilege of, um, you know, I was, I, I was sort of trying to figure out myself in a lot of different ways. I was in serious psychoanalysis. I was... What were you trying to figure out? Oh, you know, how not to be so depressed. And I was, you know, I was probably, I, you know, it's interesting because I think now they would have given me medicine, uh, for my depression. And, but I was in a psychoanalytic, mm -hmm. uh, and it was also kind of not, there wasn't as much psychopharmacology. Right. So, and I, for me, I think that was good. I think I had to work through a lot of internal questions in a way that was rigorous and, and, uh, expensive, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, uh, uh, I don't know. I had a lot of belief in myself that pretty much never wavered. Um, and I'm a realist and I'm practical and, but it was also very torturous and my relationships were torturous. My collaborations were torturous. It was not a, it was not a happy time. Why were they also torturous? I think I was prone to, to huh. be in relationships that weren't good for me. And I think that included some of my creative collaborations. I'm interested in, and I'm, I want to, I guess. Al-Anon, anyone ever heard of Al-Anon? Uh, oh, Al-Anon is, uh, was really, uh, Al-Anon is a program for, uh, f it was started by the wife of Bill W., who was, uh, Bill W. was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, oh. and his wife founded a program for families. Okay. And, and, um, I think I was, um, I grew up with in 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 uh, a family of in which drugs were central, and I think I created certain behavioral patterns which were repeated in my own personal okay. relationships. You mentioned uh, drug use. When was the moment for you where you realized, oh, my parents are just they're just like I, they're just as messed up, and they they don't know. They're just trying to figure out their lives too. They, well, you know, it's a lie. I mean, that's a, also Little Men. It's something right. That the, I know. The, I, that the, and I think it's. I it's a, by the way, I rewatched it this morning. Oh, you did. And I it, it, it's, this question is in part coming from that movie. I have thought about it for a long time. I made a really little short film, um, probably in the mid '90s, about my father and myself and we were having more difficulties around my sexuality and and the different the, the the separation it made between us and the film was about the fact that i had disappointed my father and being really sad about that but also completely understanding that children are disappointments to their parents and that at some point as they separate that that 
that there's no way for you not to somehow be different than what they had hoped for. And it may be in sexuality, around homosexuality or being gay, it was more extreme. But I think it's like a human truth, I feel like. Um, and I think in that separation, and I, so I guess I'd say when I made that film, on some level I understood that my father had his reasons, which is the, the Jean Renoir quote I'm, I'm using constantly because someone gave it to me recently, which is a line from rules of the game which is everybody uh-huh. everyone has their reasons everyone has their reasons which is such a great so great you felt that he was disappointed in you because you weren't i you know that he was disappointed in me it wasn't it wasn't uh it wasn't, I wasn't projection and it's changed oh. you know oh definitely when over time change? when did it change well i think he became a uh, changed in the 20 years since that moment you know right. since that time i mean this gets to kind of the thing that for me is really the kind of core personal issue which has become a very significant artistic issue which is just these questions of how we relate to what came before and what comes after Mm. and um and you know i hit 50 which is this year so i'm i'm at a which is a milestone and and you think about it how are you feeling about it i feel i feel good about it um can we skip ahead to love is strange sure when that that was your I think it's it's your biggest film to date. I don't. I don't. I don't. I, I'm not being. I think it's maybe my most popular or most known film. I don't know right. if I would say biggest. But that's how I gauge biggest. Yeah, I'm not even sure it made more money than a film called Married Life. Really? Which made about the same amount of money. That was in 2000. That was in 2008. Seven or eight? Seven. Okay. I, but I think it was better received. So. Oh, well, I so. think that's the movie. When I told people, you know, yeah, Iris X can come on the show. And I said, do you remember Love is Strange? And they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think what's happened, and this has been an, uh, a surprise, and it's it's really a wonderful thing, is that I've been able – I think uh, that I am right now in a, in a period where I can sus- make sustain production on films on a regular basis. So I've made two – I've made three films in about five five years. So every, and uh, that means that there's a – you know, you're building a commodity, which is the brand, which is the name. So I think Love is Strange coming after Keep the Lights On, which was just two years before, not clearly Keep the Lights On had a much smaller audience, but it builds. There's this thing. And, and that, that's kind of part of the job of being a director. Glasses. I can't find my glasses. Has anybody seen my glasses? Please go on today. We are gathered here today with the purpose of uniting and matrimony. George Esteban Garea, Benjamin Arthur Hall. Yes yes, yes! yes! Your love, your dedication, your commitment to each other are an example to be followed. Word got out to the Archdiocese. You've all known this whole time that Ben and I have been living together. The decision is effective immediately. Uh, we invited you all here today because, well, your family. With my private lessons and Ben's pension, we need a place to stay. Was it did, it, did it feel like when you put that film out that you had entered a new sort of stratosphere in your career? Uh, I guess accumulatively, I feel like I, I have a sense that I have uh, established some sort of recognition for myself and my work 
Um, but I don't rest on those laurels, that's for right. sure. And, um, I mean, I think what's nice about Little Men, I, I, I will say that I, after Love is Strange with Mauricio Zacharias, my co-writer and I, there was some, in, a little bit of intimidation because people really liked that film and like had a, and I, uh, people seem to really like Little Men and it's a relief because then I, I'm not worried about my next film. <laughs> did you, it doesn't, wor- did you worry in making Little Men that, uh, I'm going to disappoint him? Oh, I mean, I think that there was a, we just hit a, a nerve with Love is Strange and, uh, well, it was emotionally. Ti- timely as well. It was timely, but I actually think it's because it was successful drama or melodrama, whichever you might want to call. I think it really affected audiences. They really felt a lot. I don't think it had to do with the timeliness quite as much. Mm. I think people who saw it felt something very personal to themselves. Um, and, uh, Little Men, has what's been nice about Little Men is I would actually say it's been received as it was intended, and that's rarely the case. What does that mean? That means that I I think it's a very careful film. I think it's a very precise film. I think it moves in a in a in a in a range that is very um, minute emotionally. It's careful, and it could have been um, people might not have noticed because it it it. it plays with the idea of a slight drama being big. Mm. And what's been nice is I think people have really received it in a, in a way that's, that's similar to its, its ambitions, which were not small. Right. I, that's interesting because I don't always think those two align. And I don't even know if they have to align. I have a theory that my philosophy is the filmmaker intends to make something mm-hmm. and they have a certain ambition. Yeah. But in a way... Not that I don't care about your ambition, I do. But at the end of the day, it's I'm sitting there. I agree. That's I, what I'm sort of saying. That yeah. this is this rare moment where, where this film, it's like I read what people, how people experienced it, and also how they see it contextually in mm-hmm. terms of the kind of film it is and the history of film, and they recognize its its aesthetic sort of seriousness, mm-hmm. which um, is not in your face. Right. And I'm I'm appreciative of that. Uh. The film is very much about gentrification. And I'd say the film is very much about class well, it's a hand, and money. A handful of things. Yes. But I, I bring up gentrification is, yeah. in, in part because we're in San Francisco yeah. right now. And it's happening in New York. And it's especially, as you were telling me, everywhere you read, yes. the city is crumbling. And what exactly, what's the outsider view of the city? I want to hear that. Outside view of San Francisco? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've lived here. I spent a couple of summers here. My sisters lived here for ten years. I know the city really well, and I think that we're just reading the kind of banner headlines around a city that is changing so fast and that is becoming impossible for so many people to live in, which is clearly true. Um, but it's also a big city, and there's neighborhoods and people. There's entrenched neighborhoods, and and um, it it people. There's still a daily life going on here. I guess what I mean when I say that. Um, Little Men isn't, it, it is about gentrification, obviously, but I don't think gentrification is ever new. I think gentrification is like a, is a dramatic realization of the challenges people have around money and, and property and home. And those have been and are continue to be, um, everyone experiences that at any moment in culture. Mm. Um, and, I guess I've made two films that are about real estate in New York. And it's not that I think real estate is so interesting. It's just that real estate is one of the places where you can dramatize 
the questions of class and money. Right. Well, real estate represents ownership. In order yeah, to, in order, and, and 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 per, people's personal and home. space and home. Yeah. Which, and property and and for me these things are all very classic things that literature has been about. If right. you look at Edith Wharton or or Henry James or you know these who are heroes of mine, they're all questions of like who owns the home or Jane Austen. Right. Obviously. Do you feel at home in Brooklyn now? Is that where you are? I live in Manhattan. Manhattan. Uh, my kids are about to go to school in Brooklyn, which is where I lived for 11 years. And I moved to a corner of Brooklyn uh, in 1988. I drove in from Yale uh, with my college friends, and we moved into a corner of Smith and DeGraw Street, which was a Italian neighborhood called Carroll Gardens. But this street was Dominican Street. There were four social clubs on the corner, and we were the white college right. gentrifiers coming in. And so I what really did that? see. I'm interested in that drive. Of you, you leaving college yeah. with your friends and knowing, all right, we're moving to New York. Let's, let's do it. Well, I'd spent a couple of summers there, so I was already slightly familiar. I had never, I don't even, I'd barely ever been to Brooklyn before. Um, and, uh, what I, I, I what I remember is arriving and being tired and having moved furniture and and being invited into this Dominican social club, which was on the first floor of our building, <laughs> and not going. Why? Because we were tired, and but, it was the last moment the door was open between the two yeah. of us. It was it, and within three years they were gone. So may, it was. You may have had a good time. Of course, I would have had a good time, and I regretted it. And but of course, I would have had a good time. Is really saying that, and somehow I that implies that we could have crossed the difference. And I think for adults, crossing difference is very difficult. This is going back to your friend yeah. as a kid. Yeah, and I you think... Th- you think it's not possible as an adult? I, I don't think it's not possible at all, but I think it's um, it's always, it's always a complex moment. And it's it's like if you... if If, let's say, the story was we went into that Dominican social club, I think someone could write a very good chapter of a... Or even you could almost write a whole novel about that moment. Like, right. there's a lot of things going on. It's not a simple... It's not a simple, like, everybody got together and we're happy. No, right. that's not what's happening there. <laughs> I wanted to bring up this quote little man that I think is interesting. Um, and you talk about its natural ability versus continued practice. Oh, uh-huh. And you're talking about all of that. And I, I, it seems to very much stem from you after having talked to you now twice. Uh, uh. I see it. I see it. You, in, in, when you were young and even in college and high school, you knew you were talented. You knew you had ability. Yes. But is that enough? I I will have to say that my co-writer Mauricio wrote the that particular paragraph <laughs> just to give him credit and to be like I'm still thinking about what what the father is saying what what's interesting about that piece in the film which Greg Kinnear gives a little kind of homily story to his son and and is that I wanted the audience to listen and and to care and try to listen to what he was saying and think how it related to them. And to do that, it was, it was somewhat about editing. And I worked with Molly Goldstein and Afonso Gonzalez and we're trying to find a way to make, to make, um, a father giving a speech to a son interesting to, to, to the listener. And you're listening, you're thinking about it. So we were successful. You're thinking, what is he saying? What does he mean? What, how does this relate to, relate to my own life? I think what happens in time is that you, it's interesting because I just did one of these. I was you with Andrea Arnold. Uh, on stage yeah. for the Tribeca Film Festival. I so yeah. I, I, I said to her a really important word in my life as an artist was permission. 
Uh, um, the, the idea that I give myself permission or I feel that the, the world does to, to, to take risks and to tell very particular stories. And sometimes that's internal and sometimes that comes from people giving you money and sometimes it comes from you seeing some work of art which says, I can do that too. And I am very much in an engagement with, with other artists. I'm not surprised that's your word, by the way. Really? Oh, no, it makes sense to me. On a few levels, not filmmaking aside, I think, yeah, Especially with uh, your sexuality in, in, in Tennessee, yeah, I could see that being part of it. You going to Yale, which is like constant authorities, and yeah, I think permission is something that's ingrained. Uh, I, I think it's. I think what happens though, which is kind of great, is that you keep finding more permission to do things that surprise you right. as you get older. For me. Uh, in 2010, I made a short film. Had I'd been working for three years on a film called The Goodbye People um, that Oren Moverman and I wrote, and we could never get it financed. It was set in the 60s in Los Angeles, and we had Kirsten Dunst and Michael Shannon and Patricia Clarkson and Melanie How are you Griffith not getting and, this movie financed? All three of those Damian people. Lewis and Anton Yelchin and Liv Tyler. We had a, quite a cast, and an we couldn't raise cast. a dollar. It was 2008. Okay. So – not a, yeah. a tough time to be an independent filmmaker. Yeah. And I ended up after three years of not getting the the powers that be to give me any money making my own film for $2,000 called Last Address, which is a 10-minute short film, uh-huh. which I made because I was teaching at NYU and I told them to make films they cared about. And then I thought I can make a film I care about. Right. And I did this. It was, it was for – uh, and it was something I made. It has no actors. It's about a group of New York City artists who died of AIDS, and I shot their residents of where they lived. And the film turned out really well. That sounds really good. It's a, it's online, and I've, there's a website around it. It's been probably seen by more people than any of my work. Huh. And uh, and in a way, it gave me permission to take control of my own creative output. And so I may keep the lights on because I decided to make it, and I, I hustle like like a crazy man to raise the money to do so. And no one has yet come back to give me money to make a film. No single entity has said, here, Ira Sachs, go make this movie. (laughs) We're going to give you X amount of money. I've pulled a bunch of different people together. The, because I don't make, I'll just say it. I don't make profits, which can pay people's overhead, their roof, their real estate. Right. I don't make enough profits to justify a business putting money in my film. An entity saying, this is an investment that we're yeah. going to make. And, and that's what film companies need to do to stay alive, most of them. Thank right. you for Annapurna and various other people who right. decide there's other reasons. Yeah. So I think these questions of how – then where do you get permission otherwise? Right. If not in the conventional you methods. You need Megan Ellison. You need Megan Ellison or I've had like – you know, with with keep the lights on, it was a hundred people. With forty shades, with love is strange, it was maybe twenty five individuals who who said, "I want to see this film happen." That was and Sony Picture Classics, right? Sony Picture Classics picks up a film. You have to remember, distributors right. are called they're the last one in and the first one out. Yeah. So they come in once the capital has been spent and they get their money out first. Right. This these are not people making movies. Uh huh. Thank God for them. They're, yeah. Well, I, actually, the way you say it is not resentful but um well i think to, to you know to, for me that to hear someone who's in the business to think right. for a second that these distributors actually paid for the film right i didn't think that but it is interesting that my first idea of the movie is like oh yeah that movie was put out on screens because of them which they had a part in doing yeah i but mean people see the logo that's yeah what, that's no no and they're see. and you know i really do 
respect their their these companies' business models because if not, then they're all going to be like out of business in five years. Right? They're not making, you know, they're not. It's still a kind of niche business, which is um, it's not a hobby, but it's not that far from a hobby from for a lot of people. You for know. You? No, I mean it's it's not. It's a career and it's it's a profession, but it's um it's there's a reason that companies that are Fortune 500 companies like Walt Disney got out of this business mm. because they it doesn't work with their board of directors and it doesn't work with capitalism. Mm. So, uh do you envision a future where this is better for filmmakers like yourself i am i'm very interested in um you know i can talk about the macro but i focus on for my own work i focus on the micro and as you know i have another hat which is i'm a community organizer and i run a nonprofit uh-huh. called queer art which i founded and 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 now is a 501c3 and we support you know a lot of 50 to 100 artists a year who are gay and lesbian wow uh in uh people in five disciplines. And so I'm interested in kind of creating macro possibility. I'm interested in being organizing people mm. as a director. That's one of the things that I, I know I've learned I'm good at. Um, and, and, and to carrying on this idea of permission for others, like, okay, no one's going to pay for you to write your, your poetry, but it has value to me and the people in this organization. And so, so we hope that that, is incentivizing of people to continue making work. You know, I'll go back to just say that like, um, love is a little, a little, a little, what film last address was about these artists who died in New York uh-huh. and getting to know those artists and to think about them and to think about it, there was a time when, and this is in the visual arts, obviously as much as, as cinema where no one was going to make a lot of money. It wasn't yeah. like people like David Ronorovich or, or, um, Peter Hujar, an extraordinary photographer, or Cookie Mueller, who was a great writer, these who all died of AIDS. Um, these people were – there was a level of the 60s and then punk rock and their relationship to economy was as outsiders. And right. it's inspiring to be around, to read, to, to, to connect with that history. Do you still feel like an outsider? Uh, yeah. Do you, do you think of me as an outsider? I don't know if that's for me to say. No, I'm just curious. You have perceptions. So, like... I don't know. Yes and no. Uh-huh. I think uh, sometimes in your responses, you feel like an outsider. And sometimes you, you seem like your 50-year-old dad. Right. That's right. And you have two kids. Right. I think that that's probably this navigation that, right. that happens as you become part of a system and, and are still... And you're figuring out on a daily level how how comfortable that is. Right. I can tell you that I see that you're navigating it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing. Right? No, no, sure. Yeah. I'm a character. Are you? I mean, I think I think what you're saying is that you see that I, you know, you, yeah, you and, and I think that's probably why you're good at what you do. Like you're you're in, you're you're looking at stories films and then you're talking to people and so if 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 they're going to become three-dimensional or or multiple yeah. or more than that then they need to be characters on some yeah. levels i don't mean a character like hey no. he's a character yeah, i yeah, just mean I'm yeah. like, you know yeah you're not cosmo kramer right yeah. exactly. i'm not flat <laughs> um i guess to end um 
you mentioned in that nine year span where you weren't making a movie. Yeah. You were going to therapy and you were, uh, depressed and working things out. And, and I suspect a lot of that, at least for me, yeah, that doesn't go away. It, it gets better, I think. Yeah. After talking about it enough with someone. Yeah. But no, I'm actually not depressed anymore. You're not depressed anymore. No, it's like completely gone. You uh, wiped it I out. feel things when they, when I hurt and when I experience loss I'm, I'm or sadness. You, I'm glad you feel things. Yeah. I mean, I, I experience, but, but I'm, I, I think, uh, that I'm, I'm appreciative in a different way. And I think not just because I realize life is shorter as you get older, which is true, but also I, I, I do, you know, I, I'm, I believe in, there's a value to the, to, to what Freud calls the talking cure. Hmm. I don't believe that I was cured, but I believe that some of my misfortune has become everyday unhappiness. <laughs> how much, how much of your happiness or, or not having depression is predicated on the success and uh, continuance of your work? Hmm. Uh, I think that I have a pretty good sense that I'll, that I'll make things right. Like a good Montessori boy. Yeah. For the rest of my life. Um, so I think the scale might shift in different moments of my life. Um, but I don't feel, um, I, I'm really practical. Often people who, when I talk, you know, they're sort of asking me, how do you make movies and can you give me an advice or like I have this, I'm, 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 I'm always uh, a realist around possibility and what's around you. So I think I, I am for myself as well. And if, if, if the opportunities shift, I wouldn't say the opportunities are lost. They shift. Um, though I think at a certain point in terms of making narrative fiction features, there can be a sense that you're obsolete and that there, you can't get that money anymore. It's mm. certainly possible. But that's not you right now. No. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> hope so little men continues and then uh, after that yeah um i just started working with my mauricio my collaborator on sort of thinking what do we do next and it's 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 an inter- it's a fun process uh, we we did just finish this script about montgomery clift uh for hbo that's great and that was that was a journey you you looked away when you said journey. By the way, <laughs> what happened? Um, no, I, I it just you know figuring out how to turn a life into a and it's a biopic, right? And how to do that was really creatively interesting and fascinating. And to dive into, so I, I said to someone, I actually think I know Montgomery Clift, my version, better than anyone else in the world. Like, I feel like I'm the one someone was like, Oh, his sister, his sister just died. She they were twins. Like my kids, they're boy and girl twins. And she just died mm. uh, about a, a year ago. And, and they were like, Oh, don't you wish you could have talked to her? And I feel like, no, because at this point, at a certain point when you're making uh, a, a work, whether it be fictional or not, you know, the characters better than anyone else does. And you don't need other people. And they're just whoever you wrote them to be. And I feel like I got to that point with Montgomery Clift. And so I hope to get to make the movie. That's a good point to get to. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing thank this. Thank you. A pleasure. <laughs> An interesting conversation. Well, there it is. A special thanks to Rob Shear and the Larson Associates for helping arrange this conversation. You can find Little Men in select cities as it continues to roll out across the country. All of Sax's movies can be streamed or rented online, so do check Amazon On Demand and beyond to experience his work. And... 
Lastly, a big thanks to Ira for coming on the show. People. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode of the podcast, it would mean a lot if you could give us a review on iTunes. I say this every week, hoping um, that more people review the show, and I understand because I've been listening to podcasts for almost two years, and um, sometimes I even know the folks who are hosting the podcast and I don't review the show. But in recent times, I have been reviewing other people's shows, uh, so maybe that it would karmically help this one. I don't really know, but uh, if it's something you can do, if you have a spare 30 seconds to a minute in a day, it would mean a lot to just write. You know, it would mean a lot if you could just write a sentence or, or two sentences or no sentences. Just click the little stars at the top. Apparently that helps as well. All of this helps new listeners find the show. You can subscribe to Talk Easy on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop us a line about anything, feel free to do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always... Our theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna. Social media by Maria Mayella. The show is produced and edited by Coria Tad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. Go ahead, talk. Hi, it's Iris Sachs. Nice to be here for an hour. Talk about <laughs> this is going to be free form. I like it. I'm yeah, all ready. So we can talk about anything. <laughs> the way you said an hour, though, was like, all right, well, I'm trapped here. Well, no, it's, we, you know, it's, it's all conce- concept of, of, I, I, uh, well, now I can tell you an interesting story about an hour or about that concept, which is I once met an actress, Maggie Chung, for a meal to ask her to be in a film that we never made together. And after we had a coffee, which was kind of as much as I felt like I could take, much time as I could take, it was like 40 minutes or something, uh-huh. I said to her, okay, well, this has been great. Thank you so much. And and then she said, do you have anywhere to go? And I said, no, because I, I was in Paris, actually. And I right. didn't have any. I had no plans for the rest of the time I was in the city. So <laughs> I was very free. And she said, well, why don't we stay and have a, a, another coffee or a drink or something? Right. So, And then we stayed and we ended up talking for like several more hours. And it's actually that that space where you don't expect to stay, which is actually right. where kind of the most interesting things happen. The Medal of Honor podcast is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. It's a special thing to be a member of Navy Federal because they're a member-owned, not-for-profit credit union that invests in their members with amazing rates and low fees. That's why members earn and save more every year. If you are active duty, a veteran, or have a family member who is a veteran or service member, you're eligible for membership. Become a Navy Federal member today. Navy Federal Credit Union. Members are the mission insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.